Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Welcome to our fifth part of our miniseries on Orion Pictures. We ended the last show on the start of what would become Orion's golden age. They would release several films that would remain indelible to film lovers more than 30 years later, as well as Mac and Me. Now, I've avoided talking about the -the behind-the-scenes machinations, but there was trouble afoot at the corporate boardroom. When things were bad for the company in 1985, one of the company's original investors became impatient with Orion's return on their 20% ownership investment, and Orion's board became worried that they could lose control of the company. Orion was able to talk that company into selling 75% of that 20% to Viacom International, who at the time had just purchased the cable channels Showtime and the movie channel, but was still itself a year away from being purchased by Sumner Redstone's National Amusements Conglomerate. Later in 1986, Arthur Krim, one of Orion's co-founders, would bring in Metro Media, another media company who was now flush with cash after selling off all of its television stations to Rupert Murdoch to form what would become Fox Broadcasting, to help make sure Viacom didn't try to take over Orion in a hostile takeover. And in early 1987, National Amusements themselves would take a small stake in the company, which of course would grow when National Amusements bought Viacom. When Orion would enjoy their best year in 1986, financially and at the Oscars, Metro Media's John Kluge and Redstone would get into a bidding war for control of the company. Redstone would up his stakes in Orion from 21 to 26%. Then Kluge would up his investment to 31%. Then Redstone would try to up his stake to 36%, which Kluge tried to raise his stake all the way up to 57%. All of this one-upmanship would drive the stock price sky-high, and by May of 1988, Krug would buy out Redstone's shares for $78 million. For Klug, who at the time was reputed to be the richest person in America, that would have been a drop in the proverbial bucket, but for Orion, it was a much-needed vote of confidence, one that they'd desperately need in the years to come. Jean-Pierre Denis' Field of Honor from Orion Classics would be the first release for 1989, when it arrived in New York on January 20th. It's a French war drama that was in competition at the 1987 Cannes Film Festival against such films as Barfly, The Belly of an Architect, Dark Eyes, Prick Up Your Ears, Under the Sun of Satan, and Wings of Desire. Chris Campion plays a poor farmer in the south of France who sells his draft exemption from military service to provide for his family unaware that Napoleon III is about to declare war on Prussia. Orion Classics would release Louis Malle's 1971 classic, Murmur of the Heart, back into theater starting on February 3rd. Today, it seems strange that an older film might get some kind of theatrical release without being tied into some kind of anniversary or to a new release from that filmmaker. But Malle's previous movie, Au Revoir les Enfants, had come out at the end of 1987, and he wouldn't go into production on his next film, May Fools, for several months. Murmur of the Heart, which is partly autobiographical, tells the story of a precocious teenager in 1954 France who is torn between a rebellious urge to discover love and the ever-present, almost dominating affection of his mother. The film would only play in a single theater 
in major cities, but it would play for over a year and gross $1.16 million. Stephen Herrick's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure had quite the adventure getting into theaters. The film was first set up at Warner Brothers with a potential $10 million budget, but Warners couldn't figure out how to make the budget work. Then it was set up at Dino De Laurentiis' new distribution company, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, with a budget of $8.5 million. Production would start in early 1987 and would last for 10 weeks. Post-production would continue throughout the summer and fall on its way to a scheduled February 1988 release. But then De Laurentiis ran into a little bit of cash flow issues less than three years after its founding, and they were forced to sell all of the distribution rights except for the television syndication to Nelson Entertainment for $1.5 million, who turned around and sold the theatrical distribution rights to Orion, who scheduled the movie for a release on February 17, 1989, a full year after its original expected release date. The film would be released into 1,190 theaters and would gross more than $6 million that President's Day weekend, good enough for third place overall, behind the new Tom Hanks movie The Burbs and Rain Man, but better than the other new openers that weekend, The Fly 2, Cousins, True Believer, Tap, The Mighty Quinn, and Paper House. The movie would continue to play theaters for months, Three months after the film opened, I would get my first theater as a general manager, a four-screen dollar house in San Jose, and one of the first movies I was able to book was Bill and Ted. One of the great things about managing a dollar house was that when you talk to your film booker each Monday, he or she would give you a rundown of the titles that were available to you, and you could pick whichever movies you wanted to play and pair them together however you wanted. So one week I could pair Bill and Ted with Baron Munchausen and see how that went. Then a couple weeks later, pair it with How I Got Into College and see how that went. As long as I wasn't pairing a PG or PG-13 movie with an R-rated movie, I could do whatever I wanted. I mean, how great would it have been to have paired Bill and Ted with something like Heathers? But Heathers was rated R, Bill and Ted PG-13, couldn't do it. I think I played Bill and Ted for five or six months, and it was a lot of fun to watch portions of the movie over and over. I look back at my time at that theater, the UA Movies at Blossom Hill, and it was definitely the most fun I had working at theaters. But that's another story for another time. John Milius' $16 million World War II drama, Farewell to the King, arrived in theaters on March 3rd. Nick Nolte stars as an American deserter who manages to escape a Japanese firing squad and becomes a king to a tribe of native Borneo Indians who consider him a god because of his blue eyes. And Nigel Havers and James Fox are two British soldiers who have parachuted into the area to find local support to fight the Japanese. The film was based on a French novel published in 1969, whose writer was going to direct a film version of his novel in 1972 with Donald Sutherland that never got made. This would be Milius's first film in five years, since his success with Red Dawn, and would end up being the penultimate film of his feature directing career. It's an interesting film, but audiences wouldn't care about it. Opening in 650 theaters, 
Farewell to the King would gross $1.15 million its opening weekend, and the following week it would lose 62% of that audience, and would never really recover. The film quickly moved to dollar houses and drive-ins, where it made its final $420,000 over the course of nine more months. Claire Denis' first directorial effort, Chocolat, premiered in America on March 10th. Denis had made a name for herself as an assistant director for Vim Vendors on Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire, and for Jim Jarmusch on Down by Law. Chocolat tells the story of a French family living in Cameroon and how each member of the family relates to one of the Cameroon natives who works for the family as a servant. Themes of colonialism and post-colonialism would be a major part of Denis's career, and the script co-written by her would touch on her own life as the child of a French civil servant who moved his family to countries like Burkina Faso, Cameroon, and Senegal every couple of years so his children could learn more about the world around them. The film would bring Ivory Coast actor Isaac de Pancol his first major international exposure, and it would be the first of several collaborations with Denis, and would soon bring him into the orbit of Jarmouche, for whom he would become a regular collaborator with the actor, starting with 1991's Night on Earth. Chocolat would do fairly well in America, grossing more than $2.3 million in theaters after five months. Michel Deville's The Reader opened at the 68th Street Playhouse in New York City on April 21st, not to be confused with the Stephen Daldry movie that would be released two decades later, this French-language movie would star Miu Miu as the woman who, inspired by the book she's reading called The Reader, the story of a woman who advertises her services as a reader of literature, who herself becomes a reader of literature to a series of clients and finds her life starting to merge with the character from the book that inspired her and her clients, becoming the characters of the books that she reads to them. Whew. Now, here's a question you've probably never considered before, and will probably never consider again. What do you get when you write a third movie for the Cannonball Run cinematic universe, and Burt Reynolds doesn't want to make it? Or Dom DeLuise, or Hal Needham, or pretty much anyone else involved in Cannonball Run or Cannonball Run 2? I guess that's more than one question, but the answer would be Jim Drake's Speed Zone, a race comedy that features zero thrills or laughs, which is shocking because the film features John Candy, Joe Flaherty, and Eugene Levy from SETV, alongside Peter Boyle, Donna Dixon, Matt Feuer, Alyssa Milano, Tim Matheson, and the Smothers Brothers, the only time the two of them would ever appear in a movie together. Jamie Farr also appears as the Sheik, whom he played in the first two movies, which is the sole tenable connection between this and the other two films. There's also cameos from John Snyder, Brooke Shields, and Lee Van Cleef, but really, who wants a Cannonball Run movie that's not called Cannonball Run and is without Burt Reynolds or Dom DeLuise? And the answer to that is, of course, nobody. When the $18 million film opened on April 21st, in 1,195 screens, it could only muster about $1.475 million in ticket sales. The film would lose more than 60% of that fallow audience the following week, 
and the film would slowly make its way to a $3.07 million gross, spending more than 90% of its theatrical life at dollar houses and drive-ins. Lost Angels is a sad example of just how far a filmmaker can fall and how much further they could still fall. Hugh Hudson was a British documentarian and commercial director who was handed the debut feature film of a lifetime, Chariots of Fire, which would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture of 1981. Hudson would follow Chariots three years later with Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, which would be a hit with audiences and receive some good notices from critics, but it also had the distinction of being the only film in history to have a dog nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Oscar-winning screenwriter Robert Town wrote the original screenplay for the film and was supposed to direct it, but he was forced to give the movie up when he ran into a series of issues with the production of his directing debut, Personal Best. Hudson came in, brought in a new screenwriter, and Town, rather unhappy with the whole affair, gave his writing credit for the film to his dog, P.H. Vazak. As soon as he was done with Greystoke, Hudson unwisely rushed into making Revolution, which featured Al Pacino as a New York fur trapper who involuntarily becomes a member of the revolutionary force against the British during the War of Independence. Yes, a British filmmaker making a movie about the Revolutionary War from the point of view of the Americans. And if that wasn't quite enough a kicker, it was being financed by the giant British production company Goldcrest and was filmed all across the British county of Norfolk. The film was rushed in production and rushed through post-production so it could be one of the big Christmas movies of 1985, which also means dreams of Oscar glory. But none of that would happen. Critics hated the film. Audiences completely ignored it, grossing less than $360,000 after being pulled from theaters after just five weeks. And Pacino would not make another movie for four more years. Hudson also wouldn't work for another four years, and when he did, it would be this independently produced drama, which would feature the acting debut of Adam Horowitz, better known as King Adrock from the Beastie Boys. Horowitz plays Tim, a troubled young man from Los Angeles who is remanded to a private psychiatric hospital after he is involved in a violent confrontation with a police officer. Donald Sutherland plays the doctor under whose care Tim is placed, who's also dealing with some issues of his own, and future Melrose Place star Amy Locane would make her own feature debut as a friend of Tim's who is also arrested and sent to the same hospital. While the film takes place in Los Angeles, most of the film was shot at an abandoned mental hospital in San Antonio. The film would be selected to play in competition at the 1989 Cannes Film Festival, where it would be overshadowed by the likes of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train, and Giuseppe Tonatore's Cinema Paradiso. The film would open in limited release in America on May 5th, a couple weeks before the Cannes Film Festival started, and there's strangely no mention of its selection in any of the advertising, which features an extreme close-up of Horvitz smoking a cigarette while Locaine looks on behind him. The film would open in a couple hundred theaters, at least that's my assumption based on the 52 theaters listed 
in its New York Times display ad opening day and the 43 theaters listed in the Los Angeles Times display ad, but there is no easily available breakdown of just how many theaters or how well it did that first week. All we have is a final gross of $1.25 million, and I'm not even sure how many weeks it played in theaters. One film we do know how well it performed upon release is Jim McBride's Great Balls of Fire. This would be the second film McBride would make for Orion Pictures after 1983's Breathless. This time, he tells the story about the killer himself, Jerry Lee Lewis, from his rise as a rock and roll star to his fall from grace when the public learns of his marriage to Myra Gale Brown, his 13-year-old first cousin once removed, And all of this amazingly happens in just a two-year period, from 1956 to 1958. Adapted by McBride and co-writer Jack Baran from the book by Brown, the film stars Dennis Quaid as Jerry Lee Lewis, Winona Ryder as Brown, John Doe from the seminal punk rock band X as Brown's father, who's also the bass player in his cousin Lewis's band, and Alec Baldwin as another cousin, preacher and future televangelist Jimmy Swaggart. The film would open in 1,417 theaters on June 30th, and Orion would spend $10 million promoting the film, $2 million more than the full production budget of the movie. But it would only open with a $3.8 million gross, good enough for seventh place, and about $240,000 more than Do the Right Thing, which also opened on the same weekend, but only opened in 353 theaters. It would fall out of the top 10 the following week and would mostly disappear from theaters after six weeks and $13.74 million. Gerard Cobio's The Music Teacher, which had been nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars earlier in the year, would open at the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas in New York City on July 7th. Jose Van Damme, played an opera singer who would become a music teacher upon his retirement from the stage. He takes on two young singers, and the film examines their rigorous training as well as their relationships between the three people. Buoyed by the music of Mahler, Mozart, Schubert, and Verdi, the film would open with a fantastic $18,486 from just the one theater in its first three days. The film would continue to play in major markets for another half year and would complete its American run with $1.09 million in ticket sales. Now, chances are, if you're under the age of 35, you probably don't know what UHF stands for. Back in the analog television days, there used to be two kinds of television channels. VHF, very high frequency, which were channels 2 through 13, and UHF, ultra-high frequency, channels 14 through 83. VHF was usually where you'd find the major networks and major independent channels, and UHF was where you found the rest of the independents, because, despite its name, UHF channels couldn't broadcast as strong as VHF channels, so they couldn't get as many viewers. Here in Los Angeles, CBS is on Channel 2, NBC is on Channel 4, The CW is on 5, ABC is on 7, and Fox is on 11. There's also a major independent on Channel 9, and a less major independent, a former UPN station, on Channel 13. 
And then there are the weird independents like KDOC. KDOC was channel 56, and it used to broadcast out of a dumpy little building a couple blocks from Disneyland. Their two biggest stars were Dr. Gene Scott, a televangelist who would later start the first 24-hour religious television network, the Faith Broadcasting Network, and Wally George, a conservative talk show host who called himself the father of combat TV. Wally George was a fucking nut job, but he was entertaining to watch. The channel would also show second-tier wrestling shows, roller derby matches, and basketball from the likes of UNLV, Loyola Marymount College, and the Western Athletic Conference. Now, this is a very long way to get to a point, I know. In 1989, when it was time for musical satirist Weir Al Yankovic to seg into movies, satirizing these off-brand channels with their weird block of programming would be right up Weird Al's alley. Along with his manager, Jay Levy, who would also direct the film, Weird Al would write a screenplay that would follow the Weird Al music video scenario fairly well, put Al in a situation that looks exactly like what he's parodying, and then change one small thing about it to make it funny. For example, at the start of the movie, Weird Al is riffing on Raiders. He's dressed like Indiana Jones. He's in a temple that looks a lot like the one Indy goes to to collect the Jovito idol. Except when he gets to the idol, it's a statue that bears an uncanny resemblance to an Academy Award. He pulls a bag of sand out of his jacket. He judges how much he expects the award to weigh. He he pulls some sand out of the bag and wiggles his fingers around to start letting the sand fall out of his hand. And then he just shrugs, throws the whole bag of sand over his shoulder, and just grabs the award. Nothing happens for a quick moment, and then the temple starts to crumble around him. There is a quick visual gag as Weird Al runs out of the temple, and then he encounters that big boulder, which keeps chasing him and chasing him and chasing him across the Sahara, through what might be rural France, until the boulder catches him on the streets of Los Angeles. I've left out describing several other gags that are in just this one sequence, but the whole damn film is just a joy to watch. My favorite character outside of Weird Al's station manager is Michael Richards, who plays the challenged janitor turned popular children's show host Stanley Spadowski, whose idea of a reward for the good kids in the audience is to drink from a fully blasting fire hose. Listen, let's get one thing straight. Guns don't kill people. I do. Channel 62 has the lowest ratings in the history of television. What they need is a new station manager. No, not him. Forget it. No way. A man of action. <laughs> a man of courage. A man of vision. What's your name? Billy. Billy what? What they get is a man so desperate, he'll put anyone on the air. Hey, Stanley. Yeah, George. How would you like your own TV show? Okay. You get the drink from the fire hose! Okay, ready? Open wide! He's Conan, the librarian. Today, we're teaching poodles how to fly. We beat up the networks. George Newman. He starts where the others stop. We're the number one station in town. Ah! Orion Pictures presents Weird Al Yankovic. 
It's good silly fun, fully hitting its targets more often than missing, but audiences would practically ignore it. When it opened on July 21st, it would have the highest grossing opening of the new movies that weekend, but the problem is that would be only be good for 11th place, with $2.25 million from 1,295 theaters. It would open behind Lethal Weapon 2, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, License to Kill, yet another re-release of Peter Pan, Dead Poet Society, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, and Weekend at Bernie's. That last one's a particular sting, as it's not even half as funny as UHF, and it would be in its third week of release at this point. UHF would be gone from most theaters by the end of the fourth week, and $5.8 million in the bank. I picked up the booking from one of my full-price competitors down the street, either the AMC Oak Ridge 6 or the Century Cynodome 5, after that fourth week, and I would end up playing it for another four months, often as the B title in a double feature with a more popular movie. But people who came to see the other movie and stayed for UHF, because why wouldn't someone stay to see both movies of a double feature that they paid a buck and a half to see, They'd often love UHF more than that other film. I even elevated it to A title in a double feature when I was able to pair it with Yahoo series' seriously stupid, but somewhat endearing young Einstein. That double feature lasted six weeks and proved quite popular. But we were on a lot of drugs in the late 80s. And speaking of a lot of drugs, David Greenwald and Aaron Russo's Rude Awakening would hit theaters on August 16th. This stoner comedy, featuring Cheech Marin, but not Tommy Chong, would squander its rather talented supporting cast, including Robert Carradine, Cliff D. Young, Julie Haggerty, Buck Henry, Louise Lasser, Andrea Martin, Eric Roberts, and Cindy Williams. Marin and Roberts play hippies who flee America for the jungles in Central America to avoid arrest by the FBI, who return to America 20 years later to discover their hippie friends have become materialistic assholes. Rita Kempley of the Washington Post put it succinctly when she called the movie stupefyingly idiotic, a calamity of wasted potential, and a lost forum for environmental and social issues. The screenplay would be the first produced effort of Richard La Gravanese, who would follow this up with The Fisher King. The opening of Rude Awakening would be a disaster compared to UHF. Playing in 953 theaters opening weekend, Rude Awakening would only open in 16th place with $1.12 million. Fifth of the six new openers, only ahead of Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives. And that's only because the latter movie opened in just 42% of the theaters that Rude Awakening was playing in. And that movie's biggest star... Hell, that movie's only star was Michael Pare. Orion would stop weekly tracking of the film after its second weekend, and after 19 weeks it would have grossed just $3.17 million. August 25th would see another Orion doubling up of its releases, targeting different demographics. 
Martin Davidson's Heart of Dixie was a drama about three sorority sisters at an Alabama college in 1957 who must deal with the difficulties of ethnic strife and integration. Phoebe Cates, Virginia Matson, and Ali Sheedy are the three young women, and that's about the best I can say about it. Whatever this movie was trying to say about race relations is completely lost in translation. The $8 million movie also starred, starred Don Michael Paul, Treat Williams, and Robocop's Kurtwood Smith, and its opening would be a disaster compared to Rude Awakening. From 359 theaters, Heart of Dixie would open with just $367,000, good enough for 23rd place, and it would be gone from theaters after five more weeks and a $1.1 million final gross. Andrew Davis's The Package would arrive in theaters on August 25th. The $18 million Cold War drama features Gene Hackman as a Green Beret Master Sergeant who was assigned to bring Tommy Lee Jones's army deserter back from West Berlin to face a dis disciplinary action in the States. Only Jones isn't a deserter, Hackman learns after his prisoner escapes custody, but a professional assassin hired to kill the president of the Soviet Union. The impressive supporting cast includes Joanna Cassidy, John Hurd, Dennis Franz, Pam Greer, and, of all people, Ike Pappas, the reporter who was in the middle of trying to question Lee Harvey Oswald on live television when Jack Ruby pushed him aside to put a single bullet into President Kennedy's assassin. The package would open in 323 theaters and pull in a respectable $1.85 million. The film's second weekend, Labor Day weekend, it would expand to 460 screens and gross $2.18 million, its best weekend. It would start to slowly drop screens and audience from there, finally grossing $10.65 million after 18 weeks. September 22nd would see the release of Eric the Viking, written and directed by Monty Python alum Terry Jones, which he adapted from his 1983 children's book, The Saga of Eric the Viking. The film would tell the story of a pacifist Viking, played by Tim Robbins, who is tasked with petitioning the gods of Asgard to put an end to the current age of Ragnarok. The film would also feature fellow Python John Cleese, as well as Python collaborators Charles McKeon and Neil Innist, as well as Eartha Kitt, Mickey Rooney, Freddie Jones, Jim Broadbent, and Gregory Girl star John Gordon Sinclair. The film would only open in 22 theaters and gross an acceptable $68,500, slowly expanding to 269 theaters by the end of October. But the film, despite its very impressive cast, would only gross $1.93 million after 15 weeks. And here's a fun fact. Terry Jones wouldn't be done with the film, though. Before its release on home video the following year, the director would cut the film down from 107 to 89 minutes. And then in 2006, when it was time to, re to release the movie on DVD, Jones was given the opportunity to put his original theatrical cut out, but instead he gave his son Bill the green light to do his own edit of the film. The so-called director's son's cut 
With reordered scenes, much tighter pacing, and a remixed and redubbed soundtrack would clock in at a mere 75 minutes. Today, you can stream it from Vudu, which lists the running time at 104 minutes, or Pluto TV, which lists the running time as 105 minutes, but actually runs 99 minutes, or Amazon or Google or YouTube, which each lists the running time at 103 minutes. Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors would open in limited release on October 13th. It would be Allen's ninth film for Orion in seven years and would be amongst the best-reviewed of his career. Martin Landau plays a successful ophthalmologist who decides to have his mistress murdered when she threatens to expose their affair, and Allen, a married documentarian who falls for his brother's associate producer when the sibling hires the brother to make a movie celebrating his life. Once again, Alan assembles a top-notch cast, including Alden, Alan Alda, Mia Farrow, Angelica Houston, Jerry Orbach, and Sam Waterston. And once again, Alan would be nominated for both Best Original Screenplay and Best Director, and Landau would receive his second Best Supporting Actor nomination in as many years. And once again, the film would perform very well in its first few weekends in limited release, making more than $3 million in three weeks, playing in less than 70 theaters. And, like many other Woody Allen movies, the film would falter once it would go into wider release. By week seven, when it was playing in its widest point of release in 525 theaters, the film would gross less than a million and a half, and after 12 weeks, the $18 million movie would finish its theatrical run with an $18.25 million gross. November 17th would see the release of not one, not two, but three Orion movies. The first would be Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train from Orion Classics. Jarmusch's fourth film would be his first movie in color since his debut, Permanent Vacation, nine years earlier, and would be his first anthology film, and it would be his first movie with a budget of more than half a million dollars. The $2.8 million movie tells the story of three groups of people who are all staying at the same flop house in Memphis. Jarmusch would bring in a number of his regular collaborators, including John Lurie, Tom Waits, and cinematographer Robbie Mueller, alongside Steve Buscemi and Clash frontman Joe Strummer. The film would perform well in its first weeks at the cinema studio in New York City, but would stall out with $1.54 million after 12 weeks in only a handful of theaters nationwide. The second November 17th release, one of two from Orion proper, was John Hancock's Prancer. Christmas movies are a tricky tight to walk, and Prancer does about as good a job as possible. A fully mustachioed but not quite fully long-haired Sam Elliott plays the widowed father of a young girl who thinks she's befriended one of Santa's reindeers. It's a cute little movie, one that refreshingly allows its young female protagonist to figure things out for herself. The film also stars Cloris Leachman, Michael Constantine, and Abe Vigoda, and also features early performances from young Jesse Bradford, Johnny Galecki, and Jurassic Park's Ariana Richards. Opening in 1,713 theaters, Prancer would open with $2.9 million, 
Good enough for seventh place overall, but fifth of the five new wide openers that week behind Harlem Knights, The Little Mermaid, Steel Magnolias, and All Dogs Go to Heaven. The film would leave theaters just after the first of the new year with $18.6 million in ticket sales. And then there's Valmont. Orion had very high hopes for this movie. Czech director Milos Forman's previous movie for Orion, Amadeus, had won the company its first Academy Award for Best Picture. Like Amadeus, Valmont was a sumptuous and lush drama that took place in 18th century Europe. Like Amadeus, the story was fueled by jealousy. Like Amadeus, Jeffrey Jones played a small but pivotal role alongside a wealth of up-and-coming actors who had not broken out just yet, including Colin Firth, Annette Bening, Meg Tilly, and Feruza Balk. And like Amadeus, Orion would give Valmont an extremely careful platform release. But there was just one small problem. Valmont was the second of two adaptations based on Les Liaisons Dangerous, with the previous adaptation, Dangerous Liaisons, having opened a full year earlier and winning multiple Oscars. That production was an adaptation of a recent successful Broadway and West End theatrical adaptation of the 1782 French novel, while this was a more faithful adaptation of the original novel. And that production had Glenn Close and John Malkovich and Michelle Pfeiffer. Benning would still be a year away from her small breakout role in Mike Nichols's Postcards from the Edge, which would bring her to the attention of Warren Beatty for the lead role in Bugsy, which would bring her worldwide fame both as an actress and as the woman who finally got Warren Beatty to settle down and become a family man. Colin Firth would not find worldwide fame for several more years, starring in movies like The English Patient, Shakespeare in Love, and especially Bridget Jones's Diary. The $33 million period piece would open in seven theaters in New York City and Los Angeles and do a robust $96,000 between them, but it would quickly stall out, never playing in more than 40 theaters. And Orion would stop tracking the film after seven weeks and $1.13 million in the till. Susan Seidelman's She-Devil would open on December 8th. This would be her third film for Orion Pictures in the course of five years and would be her biggest production to date. The 16 to $25 million comedy, depending on which source you believe, would be Roseanne Barr's first movie, having become a star the previous year thanks to the breakout of her eponymously titled ABC sitcom. The production of She-Devil would be shoehorned in during her spring hiatus between shooting the first and second seasons of the show. Roseanne would play Ruth, a dumpy housewife who plots to get her revenge on a glamorous, best-selling romance novelist, Mary Fisher, when Ruth's husband leaves their family for the writer. And as much as I am a fan of Meryl Streep, who plays the romance novelist, I've never given this movie a chance because I have never been able to tolerate Roseanne Barr or her whiny, annoying shtick. If you love She-Devil, fantastic. I'm glad you enjoy it. But not enough of her fans or Streep's would help make the movie much of a success. Opening in 1,403 theaters, the film would gross $3.5 million, and it would nosedive from there. By the end of the year, after four weeks, 
the film barely grossed $10.5 million, but would become a staple of the dollar house circuit, where it would continue to play for almost a year, finally tallying $15.35 million when all was said and done. Orion Classics would end their year with Bruno Nutien's Camille Claudel, which opened at the Paris Theater in New York City on December 22nd. He had been a successful cinematographer in the French film industry for 20 years, and he'd be making his feature directorial debut with this biography about the titular sculpture and her relationship with sculptor Auguste Rodin. Isabella Johnny would play Claudel and Gérard Depardieu Rodin. Johnny, who was nominated for an Academy Award for her role here, becoming the first French actress to be nominated twice for a foreign language film, would also produce the film, and it would she be she who would hire the director nearly a decade after the pair had ended a long-term relationship that had produced a son. The pairing worked, and the nearly three-hour film would become a smash in its home country, selling more than 2.7 million tickets in the country, including more than 750,000 just in Paris. It wouldn't be that successful in America, but it would gross more than $3.3 million during its seven-month run in the States. Orion Pictures and Orion Classics released 21 films in 1989 between them. Amongst the major distributors, that combined $143.75 million gross of those films would put Orion dead last in terms of market share and would be more than 45% off the pace of their releases the previous year. After spending nearly a decade relying on local distributors to get their movies out to theaters internationally, Orion would make a deal with Columbia Pictures in early 1990 to release their titles under one international umbrella. Orion would get a cash infusion of $175 million, and Columbia would not only get foreign distribution rights to all Orion movies produced over the next six years, it would also get the international home video rights to Orion's next 50 movies and international rights to some of the television shows that Orion was producing. That would be a blessing and a curse for both companies, for 1990 would be an even worse year for Orion. Films like Miami Blues with Alec Baldwin, Cadillac Man with Robin Williams and Tim Robbins, Navy Seals with Michael Bean and Charlie Sheen, and Dennis Hopper's The Hot Spot with Don Johnson and Virginia Madsen would underperform compared to their expectations. Robocop 2 and Mermaids with Cher and Winona Ryder would at least gross more than their production budgets, but not enough to actually be profitable. The only bright spot of the year would be the payoff to their long-term investment in Kevin Costner. Costner wanted to make his directing debut with a Western about a Civil War veteran who ends up living with a tribe of Lakota Indians. It's going to be more than two and a half hours long, Costner warned the Orion bosses in advance, and be mostly in the Lakota language. Oh, and it's going to cost about $16 million because it's a period piece that needs to be shot in remote locations in order to capture the West of 1864 as best as possible. Orion's response? Yeah, cool, here's $22 million, 
See you soon! And despite the spotty record of westerns in, in theaters, pretty much since the early 70s, the film being three hours long and being subtitled for most of that running time, the film would be a smash hit right out of the gate. Opening in 14 theaters on November 9, 1990, the film would gross just under $600,000. For a per-screen average of nearly $43,000, that would be amongst the best of the entire year. The film would finally expand into wide release for Thanksgiving weekend. And while the film would never be the number one film in the nation any week it was playing in theaters, it would continue to play to packed houses for several months. Orion should have entered 1991 with their heads held high. Dances with Wolves was doing gangbusters at the box office, and their Valentine's Day weekend counter-programming film did unexpectedly disturbing amount of business its opening weekend. Spook easily strong. Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. The killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise. He's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't speak easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raging maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Jonathan Demme's adaptation of the Thomas Harris novel was not expected to be a blockbuster. In fact, it almost didn't happen at all. When the novel came out in 1988, Ryan teamed up with Gene Hackman, who was going to make the movie his debut as director, as well as stars Jack Crawford. The agent who sends FBI trainee Clarice Starling to interview a serial killer in prison, Hannibal Lecter, about another series of serial killings currently happening. Hackman would abruptly leave the project after finding it to be too violent, and Demi would come aboard without having even read the script, whose first draft was still being written. Orion would have to negotiate the rights to use Hannibal Lecter with, from Dino De Laurentiis due to De Laurentiis's owning the movie rights to the character thanks to Michael Mann's 1986 film Manhunter, where the character first appeared. De Laurentiis would be in a charitable mood, allowing Demi to use the character for free, since Manhunter was a major box office disappointment and Lecter being such a small part of the new movie. 
Demi originally wanted Sean Connery for the role of Lecter and would bring Hopkins aboard after also considering Daniel Day-Lewis, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Derek Jacobi, and Al Pacino, but not, strangely enough, Brian Cox, who played Lecter in Manhunter five years earlier, and whose performance would become the template for how Hopkins would play the role. For for Clarice, Demi first approached his Married to the Mop star, Michelle Pfeiffer, who had issues with the violence, as did his second choice, Meg Ryan. Laura Dern was strongly considered, but Orion didn't think that she would be a bankable choice, and thus the role went to Jodie Foster. Silence of the Lambs would open to number one on February 15th, grossing nearly a million dollars more than the expected number one film, Julia Roberts in Sleeping with the Enemy. In fact, Orion would have two films in the top five that weekend, Dances with Wolves and Silence of the Lambs. The two films were were released 11 weeks apart, which was and still is the shortest amount of time between releases of consecutive Best Picture winners. And Silence would play nearly eight months in theaters, grossing $131 million, not quite as much as Wolves' $184 million, but each of them individually were still far better than the entire release slate of Orion in 1989. But all that success would not help Orion look like a strong company. At the 63rd Annual Academy Awards show held on March 25th at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, host Billy Crystal couldn't help but give the company a little bit of ribbing in his opening monologue. A lot of the nominated pictures have uh, interrelated themes. Now, follow me on this one, will you? Okay. You have... Goodfellas, Godfather 3, the movie's about guys who kill people. And Ghost was about a guy who gets killed. And then there were the serious illness group. You had Reversal of Fortune, about a woman in a coma. Awakenings, about a man in a coma. And Dances with Wolves, released by Orion, a studio in a coma. So, (laughs) Whoa, I made it, too. NEM, I made it all the way through that joke. And he wouldn't necessarily be wrong. For even with the success of Dances with Wolves and The Silence of the Lambs, the company was still deeply in debt and losing the patience of its investors. Orion proper would only have enough to release six movies in 1991. Some movies, like sequels Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and FX2, would do decent business but would not be profitable, while other movies, like Woody Allen's black-and-white German expressionist homage, Shadows and Fog, could barely cover the cost of prints and advertising. Amongst the most embarrassing movies to come out of Orion during this period would be Bill Fishman's Car 54 Where Are You? Based on an early 1960s Fred Gwynn television comedy, which would be produced as a musical comedy in 1990, but not get released until January 1994 with all of the musical numbers removed. Where Orion ultimately failed was trying to go too big too quickly, trying to get into the lucrative syndicated game show market with recycled shows like The New Hollywood Squares and High Rollers. It also didn't help that they ran up their debt to over half a billion dollars in a few short years, and the hits had become few and far between. The game shows didn't do very well, 
and the television unit was shut down soon thereafter. The interest on their debt was so high, they needed to start selling off movie projects to stay in business. One big movie that they had to sell off while still in production was Barry Sonnenfeld's adaptation of The Addams Family, which was sold to Paramount Pictures for $22 million, less than the $30 million Orion had put into the movie since Orion had already sold off the international rights to Columbia as part of that $175 million deal in 1990, and Paramount would only be getting the U.S. rights. The film, incidentally, would go on to make $113.5 million in the United States after it was released in November of 1991. In April of 1991, John Klug, of Metro Media, who still owned most of the company after that stock bidding war with Sumner Redstone a few years earlier, had removed Orion's two remaining founding executives, including Arthur J. Krim, and tasked younger executives inside the company to turn the studio around, which is damn hard to do when you've already sold off some of your highest potential projects. By the end of the year, Orion would only have one more minor hit, Jodie Foster's directorial debut, Little Man Tate, and their debt would increase to nearly $700 million, and the company would file for Chapter 11 in the hopes of reorganizing. One immediate reaction to the bankruptcy proceedings would be the departure of the heads of Orion Classics, Tom Bernard, Michael Barker, and Marcy Bloom, who would set up shop down the street from Orion at Sony Pictures at the invitation of former Orion executive Mike Metavoy, who was then running the studio's TriStar label. The trio would, would create Sony Pictures Classics, which is still running strong today with Bernard and Barker still at the helm 28 years later. Also in December of 1991, John Klug would start talking with Robert Shea at New Line Cinemas about taking over Orion, and the two companies would come to an agreement in February 1992, just as Silence of the Lambs would be nominated for seven Academy Awards. At the 64th Academy Awards, Billy Crystal would once again take a poke at the company in his opening monologue. And business was great despite the terrible recession that's hit everybody. Take a great studio like Orion. A few years back, Orion released Platoon. It wins Best Picture. Amadeus, Best Picture. Last year, they released Dances with Wolves. It wins Best Picture. And this year, Silence of the Lambs, nominated for Best Picture. And they can't afford to have another hit. <laughs> but there's good news and bad news. The good news is Orion was just purchased, and the bad news is it was bought by the House of Representatives. <laughs> the um, first movie is a sequel to Backdraft. It's called Overdraft. And, ooh, talk about other people's money. In 1989 and 1990, Orion would release 14 films each year. In 1991, that number would be halved to seven. In 1992, that would drop to just three. One of those movies, Love Field, would net Michelle Pfeiffer her third and, to date, final Oscar nomination. But its $1 million box office gross would not help refill the coffers. Shortly after Billy Crystal made that joke at the Oscars, the deal between Orion and New Line would collapse over just how much Orion was worth. And they continue on their own, basically trundling through the completed films still in, the, in their vault, alive, but just barely.
1993 would see four of Ryan releases, including George A. Romero's screen adaptation of Stephen King's The Dark Half and Fred Decker's RoboCop 3, but none of them would make back their budget. There would be seven movies from Orion in 1994, including Jessica Lange's Oscar-winning churn in Tony Richardson's Blue Sky. How long had Blue Sky been sitting on the proverbial Orion shelf? The movie had been shot between May and July of 1990, the post-production completed in early 1991, and director Richardson had passed away on November 14, 1991, my 24th birthday. When Blue Sky finally arrived in theaters on September 16, 1994, the reviews would be quite good, and Lang would also win or be nominated for Best Actress by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, the Screen Actors Guild, the National Society of Film Critics, and the Chicago and Los Angeles Film Critics Associations. But good reviews and accolades don't always bring the audiences in, and the film would gross only $3.35 million. And then, nothing. Their own supply of movies had been exhausted, and the bankruptcy court would only allow them to license movies for distribution, not finance new movies. And so Orion sat dormant for more than a year and a half, until Metro Media merged Orion with another one of their acquisitions, Samuel Goldwyn Films, to form Metro Media Entertainment Group. Orion would be a distributor in name only, hiring themselves out to companies like Live Entertainment to get their otherwise direct-to-video titles like The Substitute and Original Gangsters into theaters. Orion would have a minor success in Victor Nunez's 1997 drama Yuli's Gold, which would gross more than $9 million from a $2.7 million budget and would score Peter Fonda his only Academy Award nomination for acting. But by 1999, Orion Pictures would be dead. But in the modern world, where IP is king and name recognition is seemingly everything, Orion Pictures would make a comeback in the 2010s. The company that had been founded in 1978 by a group of United Artists executives looking to forge their own path was revived by none other than United Artists who had taken ownership of the Orion name and library years earlier when Metro Media had sold Orion and Goldwyn to MGMUA. Today, Orion mostly distributes horror and fantasy films, and it's mostly working. The Belko experiment grossed more than double its production budget, as did Wish Upon and Every Day and The Prodigy. Anna and the Apocalypse didn't do so well, but at $45 million, the recent remake of Child's Play was Orion's highest-grossing movie since Silence of the Lambs. And already in 2020, their Gretel and Hansel would gross more than quadruple its $5 million production budget, and they have Bill and Ted Face the Music coming to theaters soon. In Orion's first 12 years, they would have six films nominated for Best Picture, and four of those would win. They would rack up eight Best Director nominations with four wins, seven Best Actor nominations with two wins, three Best Actress nominations with two wins, eight Supporting Actor nominations with two wins, three Supporting Actress nominations with one win, 
and 15 nominations for screenplay with four wins. Because of the various distribution deals made over the years, the rights for Orion Pictures are all over the place. Its Facebook status would definitely be, it's complicated. For example, Orion co-produced Three Amigos with HBO. HBO still owns the pay television and home video distribution rights, but Orion owns the copyright to the movie and all other rights. The movies produced by Orion between 1978 and 1982, when it was a joint venture with Warner Brothers, are with Warner Brothers, and most post-1982 titles are with MGM UA, but some, like the two films produced by Saul Zantz, Amadeus and the Unbearable Lightness of Being, are with Warners. The Cotton Club is now owned by Lionsgate from when they purchased the film library of Coppola's Zoetrope Studios. And the movies that were produced by Hemdale and distributed by Orion, like Hoosiers, Platoon, and The Terminator, are now with MGM when they bought the Polygram Film Library during their bankruptcy, which itself had purchased the Hemdale Film Library when that company went bankrupt. For me, I love hearing that Orion fanfare. It reminds me of a better time, when businessmen who cared about the movie business were the ones deciding which movies got made. They didn't always hit, but the 10-year period between 1979 and 1988 was amongst the best 10 years any film company would ever have. And that ends our series on Orion Pictures. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will take a look at the films of the summer of 1986, which was an important, life-changing summer for 18-year-old for me. We'll talk about that more on the show, but some of the movies we'll be covering include Aliens, Back to School, Big Trouble in Little China, Cobra, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Fly, Friday the 13th Part 6, Howard the Duck, Invaders from Mars, Karate Kid 2, Labyrinth, Legal Eagles, The Manhattan Project, Mona Lisa, Poltergeist 2, Raw Deal, Ruthless People, She's Gotta Have It, Short Circuit, Space Camp, Stand By Me, Sweet Liberty, and Top Gun. That's an interesting lineup. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help get the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.